Hello, Gary Williams here. Welcome to my In Conversation podcast, a mishmash of chit-chats with friends and influencers across the world. Now, a few years ago, I was hosting a UK radio show where each guest would choose four songs and tell me why they were important to them. Now, due to music copyright issues, I can't share any of that music with you here just the conversation. So the music's gone, which might sound a bit weird sometimes, but I think it's still worth listening to what these great guests had to say. Enjoy. In Conversation with Gary Williams. Today's guest made it big in 1972 when he won six, six appearances on the ITV talent show Opportunity Knocks. I'm sure many of you remember that. He won the Variety Club's award for Best New Artist. He starred at the London Palladium alongside Jack Jones, Vic Damone and Julie Andrews. Since then, he's toured all over the world. He's got himself a couple of gold discs and he's brought Liberace back from the dead. A couple of years ago, he celebrated his 60th birthday with a gala concert in London's West End. He is Bobby Crush, and here he is in action playing one of his hits, Borsalino. That's Bobby Crush, Borsalino. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Gary. I'm very happy to be here. You had a big hit with that tune. Well, it went top 40. Um, That's pretty big. It was pretty big, uh, but I never did Top of the Pops because at that time uh, they insisted that you had to be in the top 30 to get on Top of the Pops, and my single entered at 37, and uh, the way that it sold the following week, I was tipped off that we should be about 21 or 22, so I was all lined up to do um, Top of the Pops. And ironing your shirt, indeed, waking, waiting getting those ruffles ready. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what happened? Well, a few days before I was due to do it, I got the phone call from Phillips Records to say, "We don't know how it's happened. We can't explain it, but your record's gone down. It's gone from thirty-seven to forty-one." Well, we should explain. This was at a time when records did actually sell. I mean, to sell, you were probably selling a lot more records at number thirty-seven than somebody is at number one now. Uh, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And um, what softened the blow a bit was that I'd already had a, uh, an album in the top 20 at that point. So that probably, to me, was more important, that the album had sold better than the single did. But I can still say to this day, I've had a top 40 single. So. Did it, I mean, at the time, I mean, things are different now, but at the time, having a, a top 20 album, did it... I mean, was it a profitable thing for you as an artist? Did it sort of was it life changing sort of stuff? It should have been more profitable than it was because my early record contracts were not particularly um, favourable for you. For me, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of other people made money out of my records. I certainly didn't. Um, so does you still get a bit now? I mean, you know, do you get? To, do, 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 well, I've I've got a, a CD out at the moment called the Definitive Collection, which is a compilation of tracks from the six albums that I did for Philips Records. So it's I'm, a beautifully packaged CD. Thank you. Very and anybody much. who's not seen it should get it. And there's a lot of this twenty. It's good value. Twenty two tracks. And and it doubles if you don't like the music. It, it makes a terrific drinks coaster, so <laughs> or frisbee or that, earring. Um, that that concert that you. Um, that you, the, the way that you celebrated your 60th birthday, it was quite, become quite a famous concert. I mean, everybody was there. And you, you, you closed it with a song that you wrote yourself, which I know is something that you like to do. Um, you said during the song that you started playing the piano at four. It's true. Uh, that you didn't like school and that show business hasn't always been easy. You told us in the song that at one point you nearly walked away. Why? Uh, well, it's true, because when I started out, 
um, the business was very different to what it is now. Um, if you cast your mind back, well, you probably can't because you're not as old as I am. But I mean, I, as you rightly said at the beginning, I started my career in 1972, which was at a time when the club scene was still thriving. Uh, there were summer seasons, 16 week summer seasons in places like Bournemouth and Blackpool and Torquay and what have you. Uh, there was a lot of work for people like myself to do. The, the television was full of variety shows, so I just bounced from one to the other. And over the years, the, the, the business has changed and um, it's become a lot harder to get on TV now unless you're prepared to do reality stuff. And, you know, the club scene is dead in the water. Uh, there are cruise engagements to be had and a certain amount of cabaret. But in the main, it, it, it's become very difficult. So I've had to develop other skills. Um, I do a certain amount of acting work now and I do writing work as well. But I think if I was just totally reliant on the, the piano side of things, I might have struggled a bit in, in recent times. And so many people now, a younger audience, will know you from Benidorm. Yes, I'm, I'm Billy Sparkle. Billy Sparkle. With a lot of bling. You do a, sparkle. A lot of bling. But he's a very embittered um, cocktail pianist in a not very good bar in Benidorm. And, and it's it sounds great like a sort of worst fear. You know, <laughs> like it's a sort of living nightmare. That you end up a bit, bit of old pianist well, in the bar in Benidorm. It could, it, it could so easily have worked out that way. I mean, <laughs> right. as luck would have it. I mean, I've had a, a, a more sort of vibrant career. But um, I, I love doing Benidorm. It's great fun. Uh, and I only appear in the occasional um, episode. But uh, um, it's always nice to be asked back. How do, I mean, everybody's career obviously has ups and downs. The, the, with things like Benidorm and your success at the Edinburgh Fringe, you've been having something of a resurgence in the last few years. But th- you were, as so many artists were, as you were just talking about, a victim of just changing tastes, right? I mean, oh, yes. in, in the 70s and 80s, you know, it was sort of the heyday of, of variety and light entertainment, and then tastes changed. And I mean, was there a I mean, how do you, how does somebody cope with that? Because you you, you were a star, you know, you were a well star. You were. <laughs> you I'm still big. It's the pianos that got smaller. <laughs> um, but what? I mean, how do you know? Is there, do you sort of wake up one day and go? You know, there was was there a sort of a phone call that you know you thought, Christ, things really have changed. You know, and, and having to sort of get used to that new reality. The one thing I will say for me is that I am now and have always been a realist. I knew at the very start when my career was in what I call the golden phase, where the single was in the top 40, the album was in the top 20, I was at the London Palladium. Um, I knew that it wouldn't always be like that. I knew that I was especially lucky that I entered the business at a certain level and got to do all these wonderful things, but I knew that it wouldn't always be... I, I, I always say that for every London Palladium, there's a Cleethorpes Pier. And which is, which is I'll, I'll be playing just down the road from Cleethorpes Pier the other day, and very happy to be <laughs> Really, we did. Well, listen, I'm happy to play anywhere these days, but, I mean, what I'm saying is that, you know, you have to learn to adapt, basically. And um, although it's not... Um, always as pleasurable now in the business as it was in the past, I still get a kick out of it. I mean, I'm lucky enough at this stage in my life to probably be able to retire Mm. if I wanted to, but I have no desire to at the moment. What keeps you going? Why do you carry on? um, It's it's the roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd, isn't it, really? Um, I'm, I'm an applause junkie, and I... 
I suppose we all of us um, uh, like the fact that if we ring a restaurant and ask for a table, if you've got a recognisable name, doors open and all that kind of thing. But doesn't that also then make you think, oh, I I probably ought to do some reality TV or just something, you know, to to keep that, um, keep your name out there. That's what we're all trying to do, isn't it? Well, um, I've said to my agent that I would be prepared to do a certain amount of it if it came my way. The only, um, not that it's on the air anymore, but... um, uh, the the only one that I probably wouldn't have considered was Dancing on Ice, because I'm not I'm not the slimmest of creatures, and also you know fall on the ice and break your fingers, end of career, you know. So you have to think about those things. Could you imagine yourself doing the, the Jungle? Or I big could brother? I could do the Jungle. I could do Big Brother. Would I could you do worried any of those about, things. You know, I mean, it's a risk, isn't it? About sort of the way that they put it together end up. Well, you look... it's all to do with the editing, isn't it? But I mean, I I saw what it did. To, to my friend um, Christopher Biggins. I mean, it absolutely gave his career a huge kick up the arse. And it's all the endorsements that you get thereafter and everything which are really lucrative. And I'd love to do it. However, um, what I was saying to you earlier about being realistic, I do know that you know, a lot of the people that cast these shows now are like 24, 25, and they'll know who the... Towie people are and the Made in Chelsea people are. The important people, the real talent. Exactly. Their grands and granddads will know who I am but they'll have no idea. So when my, when my agent puts my name forward for things like this he has to guide them towards my website to say, look, this guy's actually done rather a lot over the last 44 years and uh, so it's, it's all about breaking down prejudices and um, preconceived ideas and in a lot of cases, as I say, these, these casting guys don't don't really know who I am because they weren't around during the seventies and eighties when I was when I was big. Tell me <laughs> about your first record choice, Dusty Springfield. I'm so glad you've chosen a Dusty record. Well, um, Dusty Springfield has been my favourite singer since I was eight years old, and um, when I signed to Phillips Records, uh, I was thrilled to be recording. But I was even more thrilled to know that I was going to be on the same label as Dusty Springfield. Did you ever meet her? No, we um, exchanged letters and uh, we used to pass messages to each other via various people at Phillips, but we never actually met. Oh, this is before text messaging and tweets. Exactly, isn't it? So it, it is... would have been a lot more easy now. I've since got to know her uh, backing singer, Simon Bell, very well, and I've worked with um, uh, Madeline Bell as well. What's special that. about this record going back? Well, um, if you ask Dusty Springfield fans what their favourite songs are, um, although her biggest song was You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, most of the fans um, like one of two recordings especially. One is Going Back, which is written by Carol King, and the other is All I See Is You. So when I had to make a choice, I've actually listened to them side by side um, in the last 24 hours, so I couldn't make a, a proper choice. But I think Going Back has the edge. And um, it's one of the songs that I shall have played at my funeral. Remind me how it goes. Sing a bit for me. Uh, I think I'm going back to the things I knew so well. The late, very sadly, the the late Victoria Wood called you her favourite Opportunity Knox contestant. Oh, what a know. great, what an amazing thing. To, just to have been noticed by the great Victoria how, Wood, but for, for, for you to be her favourite. How neat is that? I mean, I was a great fan of hers as well. She was uh, terrific. And I got to know her a little bit over the years. And um, when I did my Liberace Live from Heaven um, show, 
uh, we uh, we hear the voice of God at one point um, come over the loudspeakers, and uh, of course, God is a woman, and God was voiced for us by Victoria Wood. That sounds okay to me. <laughs> what happened after? What was the opening to the show after we heard Victoria Woods? Well, well, well. The opening of the show is that Liberace dies and he goes up to heaven in 1987, and um, because he's been so famous on earth, he imagines that he's going to get instant access to, to heaven. But he's met at the pearly gates by St Peter, uh, who once again is heard but not seen, and St Peter is voiced for us by Stephen Fry. So I mean, we you know everybody. Don't well, you? I well I've been in the business a very long time. So, but we were really lucky in terms of these castings. And uh, so St Peter says, "Well, why should we let you in? Because we've got more pianists up here than we need, and we've got Mozart here and Chopin and Debussy." And so Liberace has to kind of sell himself to St Peter to open up the pearly gates to let him in. So he has has to tell them the story of his life play some of the songs that he was associated with when he was down on earth and everything's going swimmingly until St Peter brings up the court case that Liberace took against the Daily Mirror back in 1957 uh, where Liberace um, took the Daily Mirror to court because they'd written um, an article that didn't actually come out and say it but very heavily suggested that he was gay and of course it was at a time when um, uh, if you were gay, it could end a career and it could actually put you behind bars. So he was so scared that it was going to um, screw up his career that he took the Daily Mirror to court and swore on the Bible that he wasn't gay. So, of course, St Peter reminds him of this and says, you know, we see everything, we hear everything, we know everything. So um, we now put a big question mark over whether we can let you in and we'd better call the boss to see what the boss has to say about it. And that's when God is introduced and he has to start the process all over again with a different person. And then at the end of the show, um, as the audience have been coming into the theatre, we've given them voting cards, uh, which they put up at the end, and it's blue for uh, Liberace to remain in heaven, but red if they send him down to hell. What usually happened? Uh, we have never, ever played a performance without... Blue being the majority, so you're safe. Oh, he's I've, safe. I've always been safe. Uh, you, you sometimes get a few clever dicks, uh, you know, that, that attempt to send him down to hell. And we do actually have two alternate endings in case you know there is a red vote, but we've never had a red vote yet. You're listening to In Conversation with Gary Williams, the best in music and conversation. You came out yourself not yes. that long ago in the gay times. And what made you wait so long? Uh, well, it was because we were about to launch the Liberace show and uh, GT got in touch with me. The gay times. Indeed. And uh, I was told that they were going to mention the show in their um, arts section, which would only have been like a few lines. But I knew a journalist there uh, who knew that I was gay and said, if you want to use this occasion to come out, uh, we'll uh, give you a three-page spread, and it will be much more publicity for the show. So I thought... Uh, I mean, I'd always, I'm writing a book at the moment, and I'd always intended coming out in the book, but I Not thought... Not The Boy Next Door. Is that's the working, the working title, title at the moment. It might change, but Good that's title. the working... It is. I stole it from Peter Allen. It's, a, it's the title of a Peter Allen song. But the reason I've, I've chosen the title is because, you know, Back in the 70s, that is how I was um, promoted. You know, the boy next door, the floppy hair, the Charlie Charm of the keyboard, you know, Mr. Smiley. Uh, But there was a lot 
else that was going on at the time. And you I knew remember. then that you were gay. Uh, oh, I've, I've known since I was 15, 16. And, so. I mean, so, and did the people around you, your management, you know, the people on Opportunity, did Huey Green know? I mean, was it sort of public? Um, was it, was it not, you know, every, was the best kept secret? Well, um, or if, was it just very, very private? If, 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 if Huey knew, it was never articulated. Uh, my management knew. You get the impression that Huey Green might not have approved. Well, it's funny. It's funny because a lot of people ask me about Huey and have done since his death because, of course, all kinds of things have come out. You know, the Paula Yates business and the fact that he was not very nice to a lot of people. So a lot, a lot um, of uh, journalists have asked me about my relationship with Huey Green uh, and I have to speak as I find. And we always got on really, really well. And I think it's because um, he liked the fact that I was respectful uh, he liked the fact that if ever I was interviewed, I would always credit him with giving me my break. Uh, he didn't like a lot of knocks at using it as um, a stepping stone and then conveniently forgetting about it and never credit him uh, in the future. Was it hard keeping it a secret? Um, well, it was, it was strange. It was very strange because I... I was in a unique position in that I was um, 18 when I got my big break. Baby, really. And because I was, even though I say myself, quite a good-looking fella, uh, 18, 19, I was good fodder for the girly mags like Bunty and Fab 208 and Marilyn and Jackie and all that. And I was front cover on all of these magazines. Uh, because of the fact that you I was hot stuff, I was. It's true, but because because of the fact that I was eighteen, nineteen. However, the kind of music that I was making was appealing to their mums and dads. So I, I kind of fell between two stalls. Um, so it was a bit odd. And of course, when I was in these teen magazines, they'd say, you know, what kind of girl do you look for? You know, when you're looking for a potential date or that. It was a much more innocent age. But I mean, then. And, and did you, you obviously answered? I mean, were you well, sort of I, careful, cryptic yes, answers, or did you a, just sort of go for it? Say, oh, I mean, how did you answer those? Well, kind of I, the, the usual um, cowardly way out, I suppose. When when a retort would be something like, oh well, I've never met the right girl, or I'm far too busy, or whatever. I'd always sort of gloss over it. But they were very, very different times. I mean, in 1972, uh, homosexuality in this country had only been legalised about four or five years. So attitudes were still very, very different. I mean, these days, it's, it's dead easy because there are gay storylines in soaps, there are out gay pop stars. It, it's all much more visible now. My gay role models when I was you know, 18, 19, the only people that you would see on TV and know were gay were the likes of Frankie Howard and Kenneth Williams. It was a, an entirely different age. Now, th these kind of attitudes uh, would not be um, allowed in this day and age, and all for it. I mean, I never, I never thought when I was growing up as a, t a gay teenager that in my lifetime I would see gay marriage. I mean, I think it's extraordinary. Do you, uh, are you a fan of it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm, 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 I'm for equal rights. I'm, you know... Man and man, woman and woman. Do you think that the, the secrecy that was around your, your, your sexuality when you were growing up, really, I mean, did it change your behaviour? I mean, did you feel that you missed out? Yes, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I, I can say that categorically. Because um, at a time when I should have been developing emotionally, um, which is my late teens, early 20s, 
uh, my memory is of um, being on the road, being in hotel rooms, being in television studios, not getting out and meeting people. Uh, my father was my road manager, and um, although we never really spoke openly about the situation, I sensed that he wasn't terribly thrilled with um, the way things were. And so to keep the peace, it was never mentioned, and I was kept quite a keen eye on when I was out on the road in my early career. And it was only really from my mid-twenties onwards that I made up for lost time. And were you aware of making up for lost time? Yes, I was, yeah, yeah. And I also think that um, one of the reasons that uh, I'm on my own now is because I became emotionally stunted. Um, and it's got easier over the years, but those late teen, early 20 years were quite difficult. My, my main purpose in life uh, was to be um, a performer. And when I got my big breaks quite early on in life, I took full advantage of it. So part of it was also being very focused on career and putting emotional feelings and stuff on the back burner. Um, and I didn't Is it actually... Is healthy, though? Pump? Is it healthy? Probably not, in retrospect. No, I mean, I didn't have my first, what I would call, proper relationship until I was 30. And, and, that's all, and I linked up with somebody with whom I lived for the next four years, and it was marvellous. And were your but it took me around to see that? Uh, my mother was, but my father had died by then. And, and do you think it was sort of better that he wasn't around to see it? Was that a sense of relief? Yeah, to you? well, yeah, yeah. And, of course, my, my, my two sisters and my brother have always known. And I've got, I've got nieces now that have always known that their uncle was special... In, yeah. in italics and how did your mum take to it um she was she was fine um did you ever talk about it yes we did actually and i remember the conversation very that? well well it was what age was she when you oh when, um, you, when you had my the mom, conversation my mum would have been in her she would have been about my age i suppose when, when i eventually came out to her and um her reaction was really uh, cool because um she, she basically said, look, you've been in show business all these years. You've worked with some of the most glamorous women known to man. You've never shown any interest in any of them. She said, don't you think a mother will put two and two together and come up with four? And I said, well, you know, why didn't you say something at the time? And she said, well, I was waiting for you to say something. So it's all down to, you know, people not being communicative, you I wish suppose. You wish you'd opened up to her sooner? Well... Um, I, I was in my established relationship by the time she passed away. So when she when she left us, she she knew that I was settled, and happy, and that's that's what every mother wants. That's and that's enough, really. Yeah, yeah. You've chosen a, a great song, a well-known song, "Love Letters" by Ketty Lester. I yeah. don't know Ketty Lester. Well, it's it's. Tell quite, me about Ketty Lester. Well, I will tell you about Ketty Lester. "Love Letters" by Ketty Lester was a hit in 1962. Um, and I would have been eight years old, and I I wouldn't have known. I love to know. I love, I love the, the, the kind of music that you were listening to when you oh, were yeah. eight years old. It's weird. It's weird. Probably, your mother probably knew you were gay then, you know. Uh, probably yes. yes. <laughs> when she saw that my record collection started featuring Dorothy Squires and <laughs> Streisand and Shirley Bassey, she, she probably tweaked. But um, yeah, th th this song was a, a, a hit in 1962 when I was eight. But uh, of course, it's an old song from the 40s, so I wouldn't have known that. 
1962, eight-year-olds would have been listening to novelty songs, things like Terry Scott doing My Brother and Charlie Drank and My Boomerang Won't Come Back or what have you. But I, at a very early age, showed that I was going to have sophisticated tastes. And I badgered my parents to buy me this record, which I love to this day. It's one of my all-time favourites. And I, I love the simplicity of it, because if you listen to it, it starts off with just a piano, bass and drums. And then in the second chorus, the strings come in. And it's just so subtle and so lovely. I think it's about the only major hit that this woman ever had. Uh, but I think it's absolutely glorious. Your name appears on the Roll of Honour at the stage door of the London Palladium. It does. I'm very thrilled about that. How yeah. many times did you work there? Uh, I did three seasons there. Um, the first one was Jack Jones, and um, he wasn't terribly nice to me. <laughs> Um, Why do you think that was? Uh, uh, well, I think... What did well, you I, do? Well, I can understand it. I can understand it. I mean, I'd done <clears throat> Opportunity Knocks in September 72, and by the November, I'm co-starring at the Palladium with Jack Jones. So I've literally just been on the scene about two or three months. But that's joyous. I mean, you'd think no, he'd be I thrilled think, for I, you. I think he thought it was a bit strange that somebody had come out of nowhere and was suddenly put on a bill with him. But were you good? And he wasn't terribly encouraging. Well, and also the other thing is that by then I'd... I'd, I'd got a, a, a top 20 album which he hadn't got at that time and a, a top 40 single which also he hadn't got at the time so I don't know whether there was some kind of jealousy involved or whatever but he, he said a couple of things on stage which I thought was a bit off as, uh, it, 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 in, in the form of a joke it was like um, oh you know you want to know how to get to the Palladium? Well, you know, just be on television two or three times and you'll be there you know, it was, it's kind of snidey it was a little bit sort of Tell me Julie Andrews was nice. Unnecessary. So that was, <clears throat> that was the Jack Jones experience. Two years later, I'm with Victor Moan, who I never got to meet, who was um, guarded at the time by two very heavy-looking gentlemen who also guarded the, 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 the um, uh, star dressing room door. Uh, I was never invited to come in and have a drink or, you know, say hello or whatever. So funny, isn't it, that you're on the same bill? Everybody in the audience would believe that you're hanging yeah. out, having no. champagne after the show. No, he no, he, ar- he arrived in time for the show, uh, went on, did it, left immediately. So that leads... No... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is all leading up to you and Dame Julie Andrews taking a jacuzzi bath together, holidaying together, enjoying the, the, the finer things in life together... Well, that's close. Oh. Because after my two disappointments with regards to Mr Jones and Mr Damone, my third experience of doing a season at the Palladium was absolutely joyous because she was delightful. And she made a point of going round all the dressing rooms before the opening night to wish everybody good luck. She arrived at my, my dressing room with um, a, a bottle of Dom Perignon and, uh, That's a good uh, start. And, uh, Hello. And, yes, Do come in. And a, a, a rose in a little cut glass vase, which I still have to this day, and wow. a card. And she was insistent that when the curtain came down, we didn't leave the theatre without going into the dressing room to meet with her and Blake and have champagne. And she was absolutely lovely. And it demonstrated to me that the bigger the star, very often, the nicer they are. Are you nice? I don't know. You have to ask the people that, <laughs> that have worked with me over the years. I'd like to think so. You've chosen a Johnny Mathis song, Yellow Roses on Her Gown. Is this anything to do with your panto frocks? <laughs> or is this, does this have a different significance no, for you? No, I don't think I've got any yellow roses on any of the gowns. What's special way. about this song? Um, well, like Dusty Springfield is my favourite female singer, 
uh, Johnny Mathis is my favourite male singer and has been for as long as I can remember. Uh, and I've chosen this song. This is my favourite of all the songs. I've got all his albums, but I think this is my favourite song that he's ever done. Yellow Roses on her gown. Beautiful song, not one I've heard before. Johnny Mathis, of course, and that was the third music choice by today's special guest, Bobby Crush. As a songwriter yourself, you had huge success with Orville's song. I know. Not a lot of people know that. Oh, enough people know that. <laughs> to have, me, four, to have right? me barred from various places. Uh, no, this is the I Wish I Could Fly. I wish I could fly. That's enough. Way up to the sky. <laughs> are you going to get ten pence just for singing? Probably, yeah. So, I mean, that... It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, and that's what they say, isn't it? That it's the writers that make the money more than the performers. It paid off my mortgage. Literally. It did. It was released in the November of 1982. And the Christmas of 1982, it got to number four in the charts. It sold 300,000 copies. It bought me a silver disc. Tell me about your last record, the great Edie Gourmet. Oh, God, I love Edie Gourmet. She oh. had a range. Uh, somewhat. Um, I was always a huge fan of Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. I saw them years ago, uh, once again back in the 70s. Uh, at the Palladium. They did a week at the Palladium. And I think that's the only thing that they ever did in London, apart from a couple of television specials. So if you wanted to see them, you had to go to the States. So I went on two or three separate occasions uh, to Las Vegas to see Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. And they were both really classy singers. They were, they were wonderful separately, but they were magic when they sang together. And just the, the, the sentiment of this song, is that what you like about it as well? I mean, you're waiting for that fella to come along to... <laughs> Not necessarily. Sort of complete everything. But then, of course, lyrically, yes, maybe, maybe there's an underlying wish that, you know, my knight in shining armour will still come along at some point. But once again, I'm very realistic. I'm 62 now, you know. Your, cha- your chances diminish as you get older. So maybe this is it for me. And maybe the career that I have... Um, is compensation for the fact that I don't have other things in my life. I have wonderful friends, I have a great lifestyle, I live in the centre of London, I drive a nice car, and if I was to meet somebody now, um, it would kind of be like the final cherry on the cake. But if it doesn't happen, it's okay, I can, I can muddle along. Bobby Crush, thank you for talking to us today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch and hear more interviews just like this one, head over to my website, garywilliams.co.uk.